Welcome to Founder Story, your go-to podcast series on breakout startups and the secret heroes behind them. Each week, we'll bring you a fresh new take on leading figures in the startup landscape as we deep dive in their startup journeys. In today's episode, we have Capri, the woman behind Dressed. Capri, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Can you briefly introduce yourself and what are you trying to build? Yeah, so I'm Capri, the founder and CEO at Dress. We are a peer-to-peer dress rental marketplace, trying to build the next side hustle for Gen Z to turn their clothes into cash without having to sell them. Um, a quick question. I think you used to have another startup, probably the same one you pivoted. Could you tell us a bit about that initially so then we can come back to this? Yeah, totally. So it was previously the uh, co-founder and CEO of a startup called Thrift. It's the same overall company, but we essentially pivoted to Dressed. Um, um, but previously, we were building a software tool for people who were reselling clothing over Instagram. Um, we actually built with that um, one of the fastest website builders out there. So we would go from your Instagram page to a fully functional website um, with listings and everything in about 20 to 30 seconds. So that was a really great product. We're helping people sell over Instagram and Instagram lives, um, but decided to shut it down in about December and pivot to Dressed. So how is it different uh, from Trip to uh, Dress? What, what changes are there? Yeah, so with Dress that, or sorry, with Thrift, we were doing um, more of a software business model. Um, we had tiers of different plans. We were sort of more of a software tool um, mainly a website builder, but also providing super easy checkout links for people selling secondhand clothing. Um, and we're primarily working with resellers. So people who sell their clothing once to make money off it once and then get rid of it, uh, versus dressed is a marketplace, um, not a software tool. And we're also, um, clothing rental, not resale. So on our platform, people can make money off their items by renting them out over and over again, as opposed to just selling them once. Right. Could you walk us through the process? Let's say Desri has a, a spare dress that she want to rent it out. How will it work? Could you walk us through the process? Yeah, it's super easy. Um, you can go to the Dressed uh, website or the Dressed app. Um, you can click the button that says sell. Um, you upload a couple pictures of your item, uh, the size, the brand, and input a quick description of the item and how much you want to rent it out for. Um, and then the product essentially is uploaded onto our app and website. And then when someone rents it out, you'll get emailed two shipping labels, one shipping label to send the dress that you're renting out to the person renting it out. And then one for the renter to return the dress back to you. So on the person, you know, if you're, if I'm renting out my dress, let's say, um, I do have to print the shipping label and find the box to put it on and ship it. Um, but on the person who's renting it side, it's even easier because you already have the box, you already have the return shipping label. So you can just put the clothing item back in the box and then drop it off to be mailed. Super. Um, and I saw that you dropped out of uni. Could you walk us through that? What made you drop out of uni and start a startup? Yeah, I did. Um, at When I was 18, um, I decided to drop out of UC Berkeley uh, to start Thrift. And the first version of Thrift looked very different. Um, we kind of morphed into the software tool over time. But um, yeah, I think for me, it was a difficult time because COVID had hit the end of my freshman year. So I had kind of wanted to do a startup. I was really passionate 
about launching different projects on campus. Um, and then when COVID hit, kind of all my motivation for school went away. And a lot of my friends were taking gap years or taking time off to do, you know, work opportunities. So I figured if I'm interested in doing a startup, now is the perfect time. And it, you know, at first it was just, oh, let me do this to take a year off school. And the plan was always kind of to go back to school. But um, everything changed when we actually got funded in the fall. So in the fall um, of the next year, we got into Y Combinator, they invested 125K, and then we also raised a small pre-seed after Y Combinator. So as soon as we raised money, we were like, all right, we're in it. <laughs> we're in this for the long haul. Um, so it turned out to be an incredible adventure, but it was a tough decision. And how did you get the uh, initial idea to build the initial product, uh, the Thrift? Yeah. So, I mean, as as with startups, um, things definitely morphed over time. Um, we started out when COVID hit, we were trying to, uh, we built a marketplace to try to bring thrift stores and vintage stores online. So we would help them photograph their items, upload them onto an app and website. And then we were helping them facilitate shipping and pickup so that they didn't have to sh close their stores because of COVID. Um, so we're doing that for a bit. And we realized that that was kind of a logistical nightmare driving around, selling all the stores manually in person, taking photos of their items. It was just so much work for um, obviously secondhand items that wouldn't sell for very much. So for us, it was a huge logistical issue and the unit economics weren't really working. So uh, we were looking into different models and we decided that we wanted to try something more in the software space while still I guess, um, playing in the space of sustainable fashion that we loved and were familiar with. Um, and so we sort of found this um, group of people who were reselling clothing over Instagram. Um, and we decided that we could build much better tools for them um, after talking to them. We essentially learned that they were doing a lot of manual processes, like collecting payments completely manually over Venmo and PayPal and Shipping was awkward and they had no tracking for their customers. So, um, but they were doing a ton of sales. So we were like, why don't we build something for these people? Um, and then it turned out to go pretty well um, while we're doing it. So, yeah. Um, and I think you got into Y Combinator as well. Uh, up to that point, how did you fund it? Uh, where did the funding come from uh, to build it? Yeah. So it was actually a very short, uh, short time frame. So, I guess the timeline was uh, school was ending in the summer. So I was still kind of, you know, living off of my student loans, student housing money um, through the end of the year. And then in the summer, um, I really was just doing a combination of living at home and living with my boyfriend at the time. Um, so I, you know, was living pretty much for free, only had to really worry about food. And I was pretty uh, cheap on that end. So um, essentially, we just kind of bootstrapped it. Um, I had always nannied and did a lot of babysitting in high school and um, in college as well. So I had some money saved up. And thankfully, that was kind of just enough to get us into Y Combinator. Um, I think my co-founder and I initially put in, uh, I want to say like a couple to a few thousand each, probably no more than like two to three thousand each. Um, to sort of really get it off the ground, run some experiments, and see some initial uh, traction that helped us get into uh, YC when we actually got our first more legitimate round of funding. Cool. 
Uh, did you get into IC on your first application or you, you had to apply a couple of times? Great question. We got in on our, on our second application and uh, same with most of my friends. Most people I talk to don't get in until their second or third application. So our first application, we applied with an idea that is so bad. I'm almost, almost embarrassed to tell you, but it basically we applied with the <laughs> idea of a social network for thrift shoppers. So like you go thrifting, you find something unique and you can like post online and, you know, all your friends can like and comment and share and whatever. Um, and there was, we really had no path to monetize that. We were just really passionate about thrifting. So we we're like, everyone's going to love this. Um, but YC was like, nope, we didn't even get an interview. And then on our second application, uh, we got an interview. Um, they wanted to kind of give us some more time to prove out a little bit more traction. So they did something very unconventional with us. So they actually interviewed us once and then they said, all right, we're going to give you one month and we're going to see how much traction you can make in a month. And at the end of the month, we're going to meet again. And essentially, if you impress us, you're in. If you don't, you're not. So we had this kind of, uh, you know, period where we really had to hustle hard and try to get more stores and more sales on board when we were doing the first marketplace. Um, and yeah, we ended up getting in after the second interview, which was great. Super. Could you walk us through the process how thrift morphed into dressed? How did that process go? Yeah, great question. So when we were initially running thrift, um, everything was looking great. We were growing sometimes 100% every month. Um, the sellers really loved us and we were solving a real need. Um, but I just don't think the market was where we initially thought it was um, in terms of the amount of resellers who were already on a social media platform like Instagram and TikTok and, you know, doing their sales 100% there. Um, at the time that we were building, most of the resellers were still on platforms like Depop and Poshmark. And I do believe it will go a little bit more decentralized in the future. I just honestly think we were a little bit too early because we got to a point where our growth plateaued and we were having trouble finding high value sellers who would really um, contribute a lot to our, our GMB and our revenue. Um, and that combined with um, the SaaS model that we were doing was very difficult for resellers because we had, you know, the typical marketplace dynamic of a few small seller or not a few small, a, a small number of sellers sort of driving all the growth. And then we had a bunch of casual sellers who were doing um, like fewer transactions, um, but we we're doing a SaaS model. So we could only really charge um, the top power users of our product. We weren't able to capture the rest of the users and their sales. So um, I don't think our business model was the most effective. Uh, for what we were trying to do and so through that we were kind of we kind of learned a lot about the secondhand space and i personally believe that a marketplace model makes a lot more sense um to sort of empower those people who want to be um entrepreneurs and run their business because uh, you can sort of capture everyone at <laughs> at every stage in their business not just the top power sellers Got it. Um, I think you've got a, quite a few competitors uh, like trying to run away them more on the top end. And uh, how do you differentiate yourself uh, from them? Uh, how, how What makes you unique? Yeah. So at least from my perspective, there's sort of three categories of players in the rental space right now. Um, so first we have direct to consumer rental. 
Um, so these are companies like Rent the Runway and Urban Outfitters Rental Company, Newly. Um, and they essentially own all of the inventory. They keep it in these centralized warehouses and they ship from there and they handle all of the logistics. Um, and with that, really, there are tons of, of uh, logistical issues, particularly with uh, Rent the Runway, which we've been seeing recently. Um, but there's a lot of things that go into why that's not an effective model uh, for Gen Z or for consumers, uh, mainly logistics, but also um, not enough variety of inventory. You can only rent like a, you know, certain selection of brands and of items. Um, so you're kind of restricted to the inventory that they hold. Um, they also typically follow a subscription model, which isn't really the best for Gen Z because that's not really how Gen Z manages their finances. I think Gen Z works a lot better with a transaction-based model. Um, speaking as Gen Z my, myself, it's hard to get us to commit to subscriptions. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I would say the second player is really um, the peer-to-peer -peer resale. So apps like Depop, Poshmark, Curtsy, Mercari, et cetera where people are hopping onto a marketplace and just selling their clothes um, and only making money off of it once. And with that, of course, um, you know, people regret selling their items a lot, which is something I've learned through this process. Um, so for example, I've had friends who have sold their prom dresses, their homecoming dresses, because they needed to make a quick buck in college. And then immediately they regret it. They're like, man, I could have worn that dress to this other event, or I could have saved that for my daughter, or it's something I still want to have in my closet for whatever reason. Um, so dress sort of allows people to still make money off of their clothes, but keep those items for the long term. And then we have, I think, the most interesting category, which is um, informal rental. So this is the clothing rentals that we're seeing happening on Instagram and TikTok without any platform and within sorority houses themselves. So sorority girls essentially just borrowing each other's clothes or Venmoing each other to borrow each other's clothes. Um, and that, of course, there's no platforms, there's no tracking, no reputation checks, um, no way to facilitate payment really easily and do that at scale. Um, so rental really could be, you know, the next side hustle for people um, if we just build a platform around it. Cool. I mean, um, let's walk me through this scenario. Let's say uh, this lady renters a, a, a dress from somebody else through your platform, but she stains it or damages it. What happens then? How do you handle that? Yeah, great question. So whenever you upload a, a an item to the Dressed app or the Dressed website, you put in the price that you're going to rent it out for but then you also put in another price and that price is what we call the lost fee. So that fee is essentially the amount that if anything happens to the item, whether it's lost, damaged, not returned, you know, anything else happens, uh, we will essentially automatically charge the renter's card the amount that the seller designates. And that sort of gives them room um, to, you know, sort of ensure the item for whatever they think it's worth to them because it's, you know, their item. Um, so that kind of builds a layer of safety around the platform where, um, you know, unfortunately things might get damaged and things might get lost, but at least you're sort of guaranteed to get an amount back for your item. And uh, what, what sort of percentage is that right now in your platform? Uh, do you happen to have a percentage? Is it like 2%, 3% where the does get damaged or lost? Um, luckily, we haven't actually encountered that yet, which is great. 
I'm sure right. we will, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And I saw that um, you're also uh, a part of uh, Launch House. You took part in it. Could you walk us through that as well? What was the experience like? Yeah, that was, to be honest, I think Launch House was one of the best experiences of my life so far. And I know that sounds like a big thing to say, but um, I mean, my background was I was living in San Francisco. I was literally living in a hacker house of all guys. It was me and a bunch of just tech bros in a house together. And, you know, in San Francisco, the tech scene is very predominantly male. So a lot of my other founder friends were males. And I think as a woman in tech, you encounter unique things, things unique to being a woman. And so when your entire uh, scene is male founders, sometimes it can feel really isolating. It can feel like no one really understands what you're going through. Um, and I saw this opportunity um, at Launch House. Actually, one of my friends um, told me about it. And then I looked online and saw that they were doing um, a, a female founders only cohort um, for the month of March. And so I was really, you know, nervous about doing it at first. But when I saw it was all female founders, I knew I had to do it. And I think that was the first time I actually felt like I had a network of female founders uh, female founder friends uh, where we could support each other. So it was really awesome. Um, they did tons of fun events and stuff too. Um, got to meet a lot of creators and investors. And um, yeah, it was an awesome experience. Cool. Um, maybe right off that, um, as a female founder, uh, did you face any special challenges? Uh, maybe with financing or at any other point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, where do I even begin? <laughs> it's um, it's sort of everything from like the stuff that we do ourselves that's kind of subconscious or wasting time. Um, so for example, like when I hop on a call with an investor, um, I have to think about like, what am I wearing? What does my makeup convey? What does my hair convey? Am I doing too much? If I wear makeup and be my girly self, is it can convey that I'm not as serious or I'm not spending as much time on my startup. Um, and, you know, I, th I think a lot of people uh, will say that they're not um, that they're not <laughs> sexist. But I mean, to be honest, a lot of it is subconscious where I have to think about like what message I'm conveying to the investor subconsciously and my male counterparts will never have to think about that. Um, in addition, I face a lot of direct fund <laughs> uh, uh, sexism when fundraising. So, for example, I met with an investor the other day and I sent him my follow-up materials and he uh, declined uh, to join the round. But in that email, he said, thank you so much for your cute and sweet offer. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. a message that um, a male founder would never receive. So it's, of course, it varies, but I would say um, every day we have to kind of battle with some level of that and it can be very difficult. Right. Um, the young Cappy, uh, when you're like 10, who did you want to be? I always wanted to be the president. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Ambitious. Good. Yeah, it's very really ambitious. Uh -huh. it's very funny. <laughs> but yeah, I was always really passionate about um, policy and, and politics. Um, there was, I didn't really know how, but I always knew there was a lot of change that I wanted to make in the world. Um, and so I thought politics would sort of be the most direct way uh, to do that. Um, 
but yeah, I think now as a founder though, um, you see yourself like impacting people's lives, impacting people's businesses. And it feels like you're making a positive difference, especially if you're doing something in sustainability. So it's um, still very fulfilling, although I do love politics and maybe someday I'll get into it. Cool. Um, and what are the future plans for this? Uh, like your annual goals? Uh... Yeah, so I think the overall vision is really just to be the next side hustle for Gen Z, essentially, um, or the mm -hmm. Depop for rental. So being the go-to biggest platform for um, event wear rentals, um, whether that be dresses for weddings or dresses for proms or festival attire for things like Coachella. Um, really, the goal is to be like the go-to uh you know, event war marketplace. Cool. Um, and uh, people who inspires you, uh, especially entrepreneurs, uh, do, do you have any role models or people who you look up to? Who are they? Yeah, definitely Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Um, anyone who has right. sort of a, well, of course, all, all women founders really inspire me, but I think her story uh, is particularly inspiring. Um, as well as one of my um, mentors and angel investors from college. Um, his name is Charles Wong. He's the co-founder of Red Octane, which created Guitar Hero. Um, so he's been a great mentor right. to me over the years. And um, I've just learned how much he sacrificed uh, to build his business. And it was really inspiring. Um, he kind of got to this point where it was like do or die. And he laid everything on the line for his business, took a huge risk and it paid off uh, big time. So that's super inspiring, his dedication and everything he sacrificed um, to build his business. Uh, knowing what you know now, if you, have, if you have to give any advice to your younger self, what would that be? Ooh, um, <laughs> I would say, um, focus less on school and more on um, building businesses earlier on um, or building more unique hobbies. I think I was always such a nerd. I was just completely focused on school. That was my entire life. And I think I could have um, done a better job with sort of like having more balance in my life. Um, I was always really passionate about business, but I was just too um, into school to think about starting a business earlier. But I think the younger you can start a business, the better, because there's just so much to learn at every stage. Cool. Um, so this is something we ask pretty much all our guests. Um, three books that inspired you or changed the way you think, nonfiction books, what would that be? Ooh. Nonfiction books? Yes. Ooh. I mean, to be honest, I don't really read a lot of nonfiction. Most of the books I read are the uh, business and startup books or novels. Yep. Uh, that, yeah, startup books works, works as well. Yeah, go for it. Okay, awesome. Um, all right. So I think one thing that really... Well, what I'm reading right now um, is The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen. Um, Andrew Chen, yep. Yeah, it's a really, really great book because it sort of breaks down how 
a lot of popular tech companies got started in the very early phases from Uber to Tinder. Um, and it's really helpful as an early stage founder um, because it talks about how to sort of get your initial user base and building what you want that to look like and then how to sort of think about scaling from there. Um, so it gives a lot of really helpful you know, stories and case studies such as Tinder um, starting off at universities and starting off with, you know, partnering with fraternities and doing parties and, and that type of thing and how one party kind of actually got them their initial user base that they kind of needed to achieve the critical mass of, um, you know, people on their dating app. So I thought that was uh, super interesting. Um, I'm also reading this book called Flow. Uh, by I actually can't pronounce the author's name. <laughs> I'm not even gonna try, but um, it's really interesting because uh, it talks about. Um, well, I guess one thing I learned from it recently was that it says hobbies where you like sort of passively consume things such as watching TV um, or eating actually drain your energy versus hobbies where you're actively participating in something such as drawing or painting or learning a language actually give you more energy um which can be really counterintuitive so from that i'm sort of doing this monthly challenge where i try to only do hobbies that are um i'm actively participating in and i'm gonna see if that increases my energy levels and happiness overall so i think um i don't have <laughs> more than that but those are two that i've been really into recently so that's right Capri, thank you for be um, thank you for being with us and sharing us your journey. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. If you liked the episode, spread the word, share it on your socials. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta for more sneak peeks on what's to come. Until next week, keep on building.